Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence, severe child neglect, and death. We advise caution for children under 13. On a late April day in 2006, 19-year-old Rhea Ramkasoon crossed the threshold of a Baltimore apartment. She had a bag full of clothing in one arm and her infant son Javon in the other. Scanning the room, Rhea breathed a sigh of relief. This apartment and the religious community that gave it to her seemed to be the answer to her prayers. Finally, thanks to the One Mind Ministries, Rhea had a refuge from her abusive stepfather and her challenging life at home. She and her baby were safe now. Unfortunately for Rhea, no one in the ministry was truly safe. She might have been protected from the outside world, but there were far greater dangers here. Soon enough, the ministry's founder, Queen Antoinette, would completely destroy her life. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we're taking a deep dive into One Mind Ministries, a cult founded in Baltimore by a woman who went by the name of Tony Ellsbury, also known as Queen Antoinette. In this one-part episode, we'll focus on Tony, her belief system, and her followers. We'll also cover the shocking death that spelled the end for the group. We have all that coming up. Stay with us. There isn't much known about the early life of Tony Ellsbury. Most accounts of her work start around 2005, when she was 36 years old. Tony was a devout Christian mother of four who lived in Baltimore, Maryland. Despite her seemingly pedestrian background, though, Tony had a burning desire to lead. She wanted to start several businesses of her own. These included a barbershop, a Christ-focused clothing line, and a shelter for children. So, in June 2005, Tony made her dream a reality. While still keeping her day job, Tony and her boyfriend, Steve Bynum, incorporated One Mind Ministries as a nonprofit. Its mission statement read, to financially assist, train, and lead new entrepreneurs into business and or other ministries. But One Mind didn't quite live up to their mission. While the ministry registered several businesses within Maryland, it was unclear if any got off the ground. Their listed address was actually a soup kitchen in northern Baltimore. A soup kitchen that Tony was only loosely affiliated with. While she'd volunteered in the past, the operations manager hadn't seen her in some time. By all accounts, the ministry's side businesses didn't exist. But perhaps it was just that Tony was too consumed by her religious pursuits to follow through on her business plans. She found a way to channel the Holy Spirit on her own. Tony claimed that God spoke directly to her, imparting wisdom and advice. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. While many believers feel a connection to God, Tony thought her relationship was unique. She heard and understood God in a way no one else could. Though, of course, we have to question the validity of this. 
if Tony was hearing voices, that could be a symptom of larger mental health conditions. According to psychologist Christine Bacho, hearing a voice as if someone has spoken without an external stimulus is considered an auditory verbal hallucination. Hearing voices has commonly been thought of as a sign of mental illness, especially of a serious disorder such as schizophrenia. Though Bacho clarified that the cause wasn't exclusive, Auditory hallucinations have also been linked to dementia or brain infections. While it's impossible to say what was actually happening in Tony's case, she believed that she was now a conduit for God. Her boyfriend, Steve Bynum, was a soft-spoken religious man. He already held Tony in high regard. But once she revealed she was a prophet, he was ready to follow her to the ends of the earth. He dedicated whatever he could to her cause. When Tony needed a home base for One Mind Ministries, he offered up an apartment building he owned with some co-workers. And in doing so, he opened the door to Tony and her four children. After Tony moved into this new headquarters, she solidified the spiritual aspects of her new ministry. She was ready to recruit and expand her fellowship. By early 2006, Tony had managed to attract a handful of followers. They weren't always initially attracted to her spiritual guidance. A few of them initially moved into the One Mind building just to have a free place to stay. But Tony always won them over eventually. Former followers described her powerful presence. It was easy to believe that she was a conduit for God. They started to believe that One Mind had a direct line to heaven. However, that gift came with a price. Tony also heard demonic voices, not just those of the Holy Spirit, making her followers even more attached to her. Capitalizing on this control, Tony instituted several new house rules. First, she urged her tenants to burn their possessions as a symbol of devotion and allegiance. She also forbade everyone from going to the doctor, regardless of the severity of the issue. Instead, she encouraged her followers to smoke cannabis. When they left the apartment building, she made sure they traveled in pairs. They could only wear outfits that were tan, blue, and white. We don't know the significance of the color scheme, but we do know the significance of the request. The more rules Tony put into place, the more she solidified her presence in their consciousness. She wanted her followers to think about her and her rules all day, every day, from the moment they got dressed. Tony also told the group she had a new name, courtesy of God himself. She was now Queen Antoinette. She also gave new royal titles to those surrounding her, referring to them as prince and princess. But even with this collection of loyal subjects, Tony wasn't content. She needed more followers. She started encouraging her group to recruit. One of these new recruits was 19-year-old single mother, Rhea Ramkasun. Rhea and her family had immigrated from Trinidad 11 years prior, when she was only eight. She was raised in the Hindu faith, then converted to Christianity in the United States. As she got older, she developed a deep commitment to her faith. Rhea stayed in her room for long periods, jotting down passages from the Bible and writing notes to God. While her mother, Sita, worried about Rhea diving so fully into her new religion, she didn't want to argue about it. Their home life was already tense enough. Rhea never knew her biological father and had a difficult relationship with her stepfather. He made Rhea feel unwelcome in her own home and even wanted to charge her rent to live there. Rhea's romantic life only complicated matters. She started a relationship with the boy who lived right by her bus stop, Robert Thompson. Knowing that her mother wouldn't approve, Rhea kept it a secret. 
But one day, around Rhea's 18th birthday, she approached Sita in their home. Swaddled in her favorite pink robe, her eyes red with tears, Rhea said she was pregnant. Although Sita didn't like Robert, she loved Rhea and took the news as well as she could. Rhea's stepfather, on the other hand, wasn't so welcoming. He grew more aggressive toward her. During her pregnancy, in a wave of anger, he reportedly took Rhea by the throat and started to choke her. At that moment, living with her stepfather went from excruciating to impossible. She needed to find another place to stay. Unfortunately, Robert wasn't a suitable or safe option either. The pair broke up during the pregnancy. Then he was put in jail on murder charges, which he was later acquitted of, before the baby was born. Although Rhea kept her faith throughout the hardships, she appeared trapped in a negative environment. But everything changed in September of 2005. She gave birth to a bright, bubbly boy she named Javon Aiden Thompson. She immediately became a doting, attentive, and fiercely protective mother. While Rhea grew into motherhood, she also tried to improve her life. She wanted to be able to provide for her son, so she started studying to become a pharmacy tech. But this meant Rhea had to leave Javon at home with Sita. And when she got home each day, she saw her baby become closer and closer to his grandmother. It made Rhea feel insecure. What kind of mother was she if she was gone from her baby all day? Feeling as though her child was slipping from her grasp, Rhea looked for another way out. She wanted to find her own path for her and her son, away from her family. When Rhea was in the hospital giving birth, she'd become close friends with the woman laboring across the hall from her, Tiffany Smith. They were both devout Christians and stayed in touch after they left the hospital. When Tiffany heard about Rhea's troubles at home, she introduced her to One Mind Ministries. If she joined the church, she would have a free place to stay and a safe religious environment to raise her son. So on April 24, 2006, Rhea secretly prepared to make her move. Rhea had Sita drive herself and Javon to a park where, unbeknownst to Sita, she had arranged to meet up with members of One Mind Ministries. After Sita drove away, the group took Rhea to her new home. Sita didn't know it, but it was the last time she'd ever see her grandson. Coming up, Rhea becomes one with One Mind Ministries, and Javon's life is placed in jeopardy. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify.
Now back to the story. In April 2006, 19-year-old Rhea Ramkasoon moved into the One Mind Ministries compound with her six-month-old son, Javon. She thought that the group, led by 37-year-old Queen Antoinette, would provide her with the safe haven she needed. But worried that her family wouldn't approve, Rhea did all of this in secret. Rhea didn't return home from the park that night. The next hours were agonizing for her mother, Sita, as she worried over where her daughter and grandson could be. Over the next two days, she reported them both missing and placed flyers around the area. She also contacted some of Rhea's friends. Sita asked Tiffany Smith's family if they knew where her daughter could be. They weren't sure of Rhea's location, but they mentioned One Mind Ministries, and they warned Sita that it seemed like a religious cult. While Sita continued her desperate search, Rhea transformed. Within a few days, she handed over her cell phone, burned her state ID, and cut off communication with her loved ones. In a further attempt to keep Rhea separated from the outside world, Queen Antoinette labeled Sita a witch. To fully adopt Rhea into this new world, Antoinette made her go through the same initiation ritual as the other members and renamed her Princess Marie. But the person who cared most about Rhea wasn't ready to let her go. While Rhea fully immersed herself in the new environment, Sita worked tirelessly with the police to find Queen Antoinette's household to ensure Rhea's and Javon's well-being. Sita, along with the police, arrived at Queen Antoinette's doorstep two days later. When Rhea emerged, she wasn't the same woman Sita had seen only 48 hours before. Rhea seemed emotionless and even declined a hug from her mom. Sia begged Rhea to come home, but she refused. Desperate, Sita asked the police to help remove Rhea, but as an adult, she had a legal right to stay. Devastated, Sita returned home alone. Not willing to give up, in May 2006, Sita sued for custody of Javon on the grounds that One Mind Ministries was a dangerous environment. Unfortunately, the process was set to be long and arduous, and in the meantime, Javon remained a part of the group. Though Javon wasn't really fitting in with One Mind, almost immediately, Queen Antoinette was wary of the seven-month-old. He didn't live up to her high threshold of religious devotion. It didn't matter that Javon couldn't speak yet. He fell short of the mark. Antoinette worked to ingrain that sentiment in Rhea's mind. From time to time, Antoinette muttered things like, there's something wrong with that child. Rhea found herself jarred by Antoinette's words, but stayed the course, still sure that her new leader knew what was best. A paper published in 1997 in the Cultic Studies Journal outlined the effect that cults have on the mother-child bond. One of the ways cult leaders disrupt this bond is by monitoring and judging the mother-child relationship. There are often restrictions placed on nurture or care given to the child. Feelings of isolation and condemnation were reported by many mothers who had escaped from cults, struggling to find any support, and monitored to an extreme extent. Queen Antoinette employed a critical and controlling stance over the parenting of Rhea and all other mothers in her group, including 18-year-old Tiffany Smith, who'd also brought her baby with her into the home. While mothers in cults often go against their child's best interest to remain obedient followers, this wasn't the case for Tiffany. While she started as an obedient member, Tiffany grew skeptical of Queen Antoinette's claims and felt an urge to refine herself. 
She began challenging Antoinette's authority in subtle ways. She protested her caretaking duties, like cooking and cleaning, and started performing the tasks poorly. Then, to further her private rebellion, Tiffany slept with Queen Antoinette's 17-year-old son and became pregnant again. In keeping with one mind's ban on doctors, Antoinette ordered Tiffany to forego prenatal care. Although she'd become defiant, Tiffany couldn't fully break free, and she obeyed these orders, avoiding medical attention as she carried her child to term. On a cold fall day in October 2006, Tiffany gave birth within the ministry's walls. Even after the arrival of her newborn granddaughter, Antoinette continued to battle with Tiffany. Two weeks later, Antoinette evicted Tiffany from the home for her dissenting behavior and what Antoinette declared mistreatment of her children. Tiffany was forced to leave her children behind. However, two days later, she returned with the police. Unlike Sita, Tiffany had the law on her side in this case. Queen Antoinette and the others put up a feeble fight, but they were arrested for obstruction of justice. They were released quickly on their recognizance, with nothing more than a warning if they agreed not to disobey the law again. Tiffany, meanwhile, was reunited with her children. She took them home, finally able to introduce her parents to her toddler and newborn daughter. While Tiffany's parents had a reunion, Rhea's mother, Sita, continued her fight to wrestle her daughter and grandson back from the cult's clutches. But things weren't looking bright. The police had told Sita to give up on Rhea because of her age, and saving Javon seemed like a lost cause as well. The custody battle had hit a stalemate, and Child Protective Services didn't follow up on Sita's claims. Growing more desperate, Sita sent a handwritten letter to a circuit court judge in November 2006. In it, Sita pleaded for any form of help the legal system could provide. She wrote, My grandson is now 18 months old, and I fear for his and my daughter's safety. They are in a cult. Judge, I am so scared for my family. But she never received a response, so Sita was forced to carry on. She had vivid dreams about Javon, imagining him in her arms again. Javon whispered in her ear, I want to come live where you live. While Sita focused on liberating two members from the house, Queen Antoinette sought recruits to fill more beds. It seemed that Queen Antoinette had figured out a pattern of control that worked. Despite her disdain for Javon, Antoinette searched for more young parents with children to bring into her fold. And she turned to another of Sita's children, Rhea's brother Ricky, who'd recently welcomed a baby into the world. Ricky had no intention of joining Antoinette, but he took the opportunity to get more information about the group his sister had joined. He observed how they prayed extensively for forgiveness and mercy, more to Queen Antoinette than to God. Ricky saw his nephew Javon for the first time in months. Unfortunately, he witnessed the mistreatment of the young child. When members of the group, including Antoinette, smoked cannabis, they would put their lips on Javon's and blow the smoke into his mouth. In addition to their harmful behavior, members told Ricky that if he joined, he could no longer talk to his mother, Sita, who they compared to the devil. One afternoon, Ricky went to the park with Rhea, Javon, and a few other members of the group. He played with the boy for a while, overjoyed to have an afternoon with his nephew. Although he was worried about what he'd seen at the One Mind building, here at the park, everything was calm and pleasant. But when it came time for a snack break, the mood shifted drastically. 
Ricky offered an Oreo to Javon. This gesture sent the cult members into a frenzy. They scooped up Javon and stormed off. Bewildered, Ricky asked Rhea what was wrong. She wasn't able to answer him. She could only tearfully tell Ricky that he could no longer visit their home. Ricky never saw Javon again. Not long after, One Mind Ministries changed location. It's unclear if Ricky's actions had anything to do with it, but the group moved into a brick home in West Baltimore in late 2006. While it seemed that the ministry sought out a fresh start in their new apartment, they didn't change any of their teachings, and it wasn't long before their new beginnings brought about a tragic end. At 15 months old, Javon knew how to say several words, including mom and amen, which 19-year-old Rhea prompted him to say after each prayer. But at one mealtime shortly after moving, when Rhea prompted an amen from Javon, he wouldn't reply. Queen Antoinette erupted. She declared that this was the result of a rebellious demon within him. As punishment, Queen Antoinette told Rhea not to feed Javon until he obeyed. Rhea complied, afraid that her son was possessed. Per Queen Antoinette's orders, they placed Javon in a playpen where everybody could see him. Days passed without Javon receiving any food or water. Under Queen Antoinette's orders, nobody tended to the boy. They all lived in fear of what Queen Antoinette would do. Their leader controlled their souls and seemed to know about their whereabouts at all times. If they disobeyed her, she would immediately know. Even Rhea held back from helping Javon. She believed that Antoinette's decree came from God and wouldn't dare to act out against a holy message for fear of eternal damnation. So Rhea watched, helpless, as Javon grew weak and pale. His lips dried up, his motion became sluggish, but eventually Queen Antoinette's boyfriend, Stephen Bynum, confronted Rhea in private. Fed up with what he saw, Stephen brought Rhea into his office and told her that there was nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament that said you should not feed a child because he doesn't say amen. His words brought her to tears. Rhea felt tortured and helpless, but she was too afraid to rebel against Queen Antoinette. Days later, Queen Antoinette finally told Rhea to feed her son. She rushed to prepare a paste of carrots and peas for her starving infant. However, it was too late. Javon was too dehydrated to swallow. His heart stopped, and he died in his mother's arms. Coming up, following the passing of Javon, the ministry begins crumbling. Now back to the story. In late 2006, 18-month-old Javon Ramkissoon died in his mother's arms after several days of food deprivation. In the moments after Javon's passing, members of the group rushed to tell Antoinette, Instead of panicking, she commanded the ministry to pray for Javon's resurrection. Members placed Javon's body in a bed. Rhea then climbed in to be next to her son. She read and prayed to her departed infant as he decayed before her. As the days turned into weeks, she remained by his side, desperate to nurture him back to life. For the rest at One Mind Ministries, Javon's death wore heavily on them. They worried what would happen to their group if anyone found out. So when a landlord entered the One Mind Ministries apartment in late January 2007, members flew into a panic, hiding any evidence that Javon ever lived there. However, it seems that their panic was misplaced. The landlord's visit wasn't prompted by suspicion of a hidden body. Instead, they came because One Mind Ministries had too many people living within their walls. 
Even though Steve, Queen Antoinette's boyfriend, co-owned the building, it seems that his hands were tied. Shortly after the landlord's visit, the group was evicted from the premises. Then it came time to pack. Antoinette had her daughter, Princess Travia, and fellow cult member Prince Marcus measure Javon's body. They then left the ministry to find a suitcase large enough to hold the child's body. The pair then hid Javon in the roller bag, which they padded with fabric softener sheets to hide the smell. On the heels of their eviction, One Mind Ministries left Baltimore entirely. Antoinette told her followers that God wanted her to go to Philadelphia. Steve drove the Queen, Travia, Marcus, Danielle, and Rhea to a motel in Pennsylvania in a rented car, but he didn't accompany them for the rest of their journey. Instead, he left them to take the train the rest of the way into the city. After Javon's death and attempted resurrection, Steve's connection to the group, as well as Antoinette, frayed. Once the ministry arrived in Philadelphia, Queen Antoinette used the same charm that worked on her followers to convince 79-year-old Samuel Morgan to let them stay in his row home. However, they weren't great house guests. Samuel eventually saw One Mind Ministries as a pack of drifters on the run rather than a group following the word of God. Less than a month after arriving, he told them to leave. Queen Antoinette tried to convince him otherwise, but after days of arguing, Samuel threatened to involve the police. Wanting to avoid the authorities, they agreed to leave immediately, if he allowed them to store their luggage in his shed. When they finally took off, they left behind three bags, one of which contained Javon's body. Antoinette and her followers' next stop was New York City. There, the pressure to remain vigilant reached an all-time high. Antoinette demanded complete obedience. Follower Danielle Smith cracked. She scrawled the words, We love our children, all over the wall of the ministry's new apartment. The next day, under Antoinette's request, cult members escorted Danielle to Kings County Hospital Center in Brooklyn. It seemed that Antoinette's rules against medical care had their breaking point. They felt that Danielle's urge to disclose the group's communal crimes could jeopardize all their freedom. However, this act of self-preservation eventually brought everything to light. At first, Danielle felt as isolated in the hospital as she did under Queen Antoinette's roof. No one believed what she'd lived through as a member of One Mind Ministries. Thankfully, though, she was eventually able to get through to a caseworker. She shared everything that had happened over the last two years, including what happened to Javon. She later left the hospital with a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Danielle provided details of all that she'd been through to a New York City social worker. And by April 2008, officers uncovered the green suitcase on Samuel Morgan's Philadelphia property. While DNA tests worked to confirm the identity of the remains, legal action began on other matters. In May of 2008, three members of One Mind were arrested. 39-year-old Queen Antoinette, her 20-year-old daughter Travia Williams, and 21-year-old Marcus Cobbs. Police discovered that Rhea was no longer part of the cult. She had slipped away and moved back to Baltimore. Five months later, authorities found 21-year-old Rhea Ramkasum living in an East Baltimore homeless shelter. They arrested her, and a judge ordered her to be held without bail. On Rhea's court day, she stood with her hands shackled behind her back. She spoke faintly and sparingly in court. Nervous, she rocked side to side as the judge read the charge of child abuse resulting in death. 
Rhea pleaded guilty, but asked for a provision to her plea. Still entrenched in the belief that her boy would be resurrected, Rhea requested her charges be withdrawn if Javon came back to life. Surprisingly, the prosecutor agreed to the provision. As part of her plea deal, Rhea was sent to a residential treatment facility for an indefinite length of time. While Rhea got help, her mother Sita collected Javon's remains and gave him a proper burial. It was a small piece of closure in the face of her intense rage. Sita had only gotten seven months with Javon before his life came to an end. She also knew that it would take years for Rhea to return to the person that she previously knew. Queen Antoinette, Travia Williams, and Marcus Cobbs all faced criminal charges for Javon's death. They represented themselves in court during their trial in 2010. None of the three testified or called any witnesses. Antoinette's only submitted evidence was a handwritten application for One Mind Ministries' nonprofit status, which proclaimed her to be a chosen daughter of the Most High God and a Queen of Jesus Christ. Because Antoinette held herself in sacredly high regard, she felt unjustly condemned by the media. In her closing arguments, Antoinette said that the three of them had been like pariahs. She added that she felt as though Javon's death was pinned on them because people wanted someone to blame. She saw herself as innocent, only carrying out the word of God. The prosecution had no empathy to spare for Antoinette and her followers. In their opinion, Antoinette, who commanded Javon's starvation, was more culpable than Rhea. In Sita's testimony to the court, she said, I don't want to be cruel, but I want them to feel pain ten times more than my grandson did when he died. They have ruined my daughter's life forever. They took away that little boy from us. On March 2nd, 2010, the jury returned three guilty verdicts. Antoinette was convicted with charges of second-degree murder, and the judge sentenced her to 50 years in prison. Travia and Marcus were each given 15-year sentences. As their verdicts were read aloud, their faces remained blank and emotionless. During court proceedings, Sita sat in the front row of the courtroom with a photo of Javon pinned to her collar and a picture of Rhea in her jacket pocket. The night after Sita testified, she saw Javon in her dream once more. He jumped on her bed, tugging at her bedsheets, happy, vibrant, just as she remembered him. Sita knew that she would never see Javon again. She tried to do what she could to get her daughter back. After years of processing and a court-ordered stay in a faith-based treatment center, Rhea finally came to terms with the brutal truth of what happened. She understood that Javon's death wasn't the result of God's will, but her neglect. In August 2010, authorities held a hearing to verify the effectiveness of Rhea's rehabilitation. After her first 90 days in treatment, Rhea's belief that Javon would be resurrected had faded. The court took it as a sign that she was shedding the hold that One Mind Ministries had over her. In that same hearing, Circuit Judge Timothy J. Dewey recognized Rhea's innocence amidst her guilt. Although she was responsible for Javon's death, he acknowledged that her actions were carried out without any bad intentions for her son. However, he decided Rhea needed to stay in the rehabilitation center until staff found her fully prepared to re-enter the world. As with her mother, Sita, Rhea found it difficult to see an end to mourning for her once bright and bubbly young boy. Despite this, her faith remained intact. When questioned about how she could still believe in God, Rhea had separated One Mind Ministries from true Christian practices. 
In a discussion with the Associated Press, Maria said that, Coming from a cult, people don't want to hear you talk about God. It doesn't mean that God isn't true and that the community and love and family don't exist in the right way. Amidst the sharp pain of loss, Rhea's mindset kept her afloat. Today, Queen Antoinette continues to serve a 50-year sentence for murder. Although her reign is over, the impact of Antoinette's commands has forever shifted the course of dozens of lives and ended one before it could truly begin. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. For more information on One Mind Ministries, amongst the many sources we used, we found Trisha Bishop's March 2010 article in the Baltimore Sun extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Autumn Palin, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 